to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm your host, Danny, and our linguistic journey today is leading us to the Caucasus, the border region between Europe and Asia, full of mountains, peoples, and languages. Our way into this linguistically rich region is via the Ossetian language, guided by Dr. Samapriya Basul. Samapriya's impressive expertise opens up a whole world of modern, historical, and prehistorical language, and I learned a great deal recording this. I hope that you enjoy it too. I am thrilled to say that I have joining me all the way from the other side of Canada, Samapriya Basu. Now, Samapriya Basu is a postdoctoral researcher in Vancouver at Simon Fraser University. And while his day job is working on statistics, he is also the most incredible linguist. For those of you who may be very online, like me, you may be aware of his wonderful linguistic output on Twitter. He has this incredible breadth of languages that he talks about, both in terms of the spread of languages, how languages change, with a particular focus, although it's not particularly focused, on the Iranian and the Indo-Aryan language families. So we've got lots of great material to get through today. So, Samapriya, how are you feeling today? How are you doing in Canada? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It is a cloudy day here in Canada. (laughs) You have chosen a language that you love. That's what this podcast is all about. We want to hear about a particular language that you have a real fondness for and you just love telling people about. I think this is perhaps a challenge for you, given the breadth of languages that you so consistently demonstrate your expertise in. But for today, at least, it's one language that we are talking about. So tell me, what is a language that you love? Okay, so a language that I really love is Ossetian. Now, I am going to wager that for the majority of our listeners, this is not a language that is already known to them. And that's absolutely fine. There's like 6,000 languages in the world, can't know them all. So I think first and foremost, we need to get a sense of this language, build up a language profile for Ossetian. First things first, where in the world can you find speakers of Ossetian? Ossetian is a language spoken in the North Caucasus and the Central Caucasus. It is spoken in two political units, North Ossetia, which is part of the Russian Federation, and South Ossetia, on which there is some political debate, which I'm not going to go into. And on all of its side, it's surrounded other than Russian, which has been a recent incursion from the 1800s onward into the Caucasus. And all of its side, Ossetian is surrounded by non-Indo-European languages, although it is an Indo-European language itself. Right. OK, so it's in the Caucasus, this massive mountain range that exists as really as the border between Asia or one of the borders between Asia and Europe. It's surrounded by a plethora of languages and language families. And then right in the middle here, we have Ossetian, which, as you say, is Indo-European. So it's related to English, albeit very distantly, related also to Russian and to Kurdish to the south. But I believe, at least, that the genealogy of Ossetian as a language, its ancestry, is quite surprising. It's perhaps not what we expect based on its geography. Can you unpack that a little? What's the ancestry of this language? 
Okay, yeah, this is actually a very interesting question in itself. So Ossetian is an uh, Indo-European language, but it belongs in the Iranic subgroup of the Indo-Iranian branch of Indo-European. In other words, Ossetian's closest relatives are other Iranic languages. So languages like Persian and Kurdish and Pashto, which is uh, a language spoken in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and perhaps more closely, uh, some really smaller languages spoken in Tajikistan, such as Yaknobi, Wahi, uh, Yazgulami, and so on, and as well as historical languages you may have heard of, uh, which include Avestan, Hotanese, Sogdian, and so on. A little more distantly, it is related to the Indo-Aryan languages of India, like Hindi and Bengali and Kashmiri, and then furthermore to the languages of Europe and so on. Now, Ossetian, despite being an Aaronic language, has been outside of the Persosphere. So what makes it really interesting is that it doesn't have the layers of borrowing and cultural influence from Persian as this you know, massive language of Islamic culture, which Ossetian has always been outside of that range. So this kind of makes it very different from every other Aaronic language out there. But it's classified within these subfamily of the Iranian languages. It's classified as East. If you take a very brief glimpse at a map, Ossetian, where it's spoken in comparison to the rest of its language family, not very Eastern. You know, it's far, far to the West. It's up in the mountains, northwest of the modern day country of Iran. So how did it get there? Yeah, this this sort of takes us back to Indo-Iranic prehistory. So of course, the label East Iranic is debated because the internal classification of Iranic languages is still very much an open question. And, and one should always take you know labels like East and West in there somewhat with a hint of salt. It's called East Iranic because uh, the, the languages most closely related to Assyrian are, of course, at the far eastern boundary of Iranic languages. As I mentioned, they're in Tajikistan. However, Assyrian itself, as you mentioned, is in the far west of, of the Aaronic language sphere, as such. So historically, Ossetian descends from the languages of steppe nomads. Uh, so as you may know, Aaronic languages descend from Proto-Indo-Aaronic, which was spoken somewhere in the, in the steppes, in the Central Asian steppes. So likely Kazakhstan or Bashkortostan, uh, which is part of the steppe region of Russia, probably in, somewhere in that region. And then a lot of migrations from there took Indo-Iranian languages into India and Iran and Afghanistan, but the Iranic speakers who never left the steppes, they became known in antiquity through various names, such as Scythians and Sarmatians and Masagetans and so on. And Ossetians are the last descendants, so to speak, of those steppe dwellers. Right. So then Ossetian once upon a time would have been in contact. It would have been somehow connected to the rest of its little family, but it's essentially been marooned uh, in the Caucasus. So then we have these languages, we have this older state uh, where Iranian languages are much more widespread. Ossetian, or what becomes Ossetian, moves into this region, and it's coming into contact with a bunch of other languages. So as you mentioned, the country of Georgia, I'm assuming that there might be a situation where Ossetian speakers know a lot of Georgian. Is it being affected by these other languages of the Caucasus? Yes, indeed. So to, to wind back a little bit, uh, again, to the prehistory of Ossetian, or at least what we can gleam into it. Unfortunately, this is not a language for which we have a lot of 
explicit historical records. What, whatever we can piece together of its history has to come from external sources. So whatever the Greeks wrote about it, whatever the Persians wrote about it, and so on. And from there, we can see that the steppes, as you mentioned, in antiquity was probably, among other things, there would probably also have been Turkic languages and others, uh, Uralic languages, of course, in the Tiger region. But most of the steppes would have been speaking various kinds of various dialects of Uranic languages. And the westernmost of these dialects is associated with the tribes known in European records, both early medieval and uh, of antiquity, as the Sarmatians and the Massagetans. And one branch of this group expanded from the steppes into the northern Caucasus, or, or more specifically, the plains north of the Caucasus Mountains, which would today be the areas of Karachai, Balkaria, and just north of there, and settled there. And from the 8th or 9th centuries or so, a kingdom called Alania uh, shows up in that region, which we associate with the, you may say, Proto-Ossetians. Now, eventually, Alania would be destroyed by the Mongol and the Timurid conquests. So the Mongol conquests of the 1200 and Timurid conquest of the late 1300s. And this would cause the denizens of that kingdom, the speakers of Ossetian, to flee further into the Caucasus Mountains. And that's where they dwelled until their modern records roughly in the 1700s begin again. And in that time, of course, Ossetian got completely detached from every other Indo-European language other than some small contact with Russian once in a while. And its neighbors fall into the three autochthonous language families of the Caucasus. One is, of course, South Caucasian languages like Georgian. The other one on the East are East Caucasian languages like English and Chechen. And uh, those are the ones which Ossetian has been in contact with. There are other East Caucasian languages like Avar and Leskian further away. And on the West, with West Caucasian languages, in particular, Circassian. Uh, although there is some evidence of contact with Abkhaz and Ubuk as well. So as you can see, Ossetian occupies a really interesting position that on all sides are not just unrelated languages, but also languages that are potentially unrelated among themselves, which kind of brings you back to why the Caucasus was called by, by Arab geographers in the Middle Ages, the mountain of tongues, because there's just so much uh, linguistic diversity over there. And in addition, Ossetian also has had contact with Turkic languages, because as, you, as we know, Turkic languages were widespread and still are in the steppes. So in having such a wide range of neighbors in terms of their linguistic structures, in terms of their lexicons and so on, uh, Ossetian has indeed gotten influenced by them. There's various parts of Ossetian grammar that have been attributed to influence from either Georgian or Nakh. Nakh is in English and Chechen uh, or Circassian. So there's borrowings, for example, even in basic vocabulary like hand, uh, like arm and leg and, um, and beard, we see potential loanwords from languages like English and Circassian. So incredibly diverse, this region of the world where the Ossetian language finds itself and so many ingredients have gone into making the modern language. So a quick question, if we were to get a speaker of Ossetian and then, you know, have them try to have a conversation with a speaker of its closest Iranian cousins, so say a speaker of Pashto in Afghanistan, how much do you think they would understand? Anything at all? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> uh, in terms of also the linguistic structure, Ossetian 
is somewhat different from other Iranic languages. Well, of course, there are things in basic vocabulary that you would often find similar among these languages. For example, the word for, say, ear is related in Pashto and Ossetian, but it might be difficult for speakers to just identify it off the bat. And part of the reason for that is that Pashto itself has undergone really radical changes. <laughs> but also, because Ossetian's been isolated for so long, a lot of vocabulary that it has, even though they're demonstrably ironic or even Indo-European, the sort of semantic changes that it's undergone are unlike any other language. So for instance, I'll give you one example. The word for water in Ossetian is don. And this has been a word in the uh, step ironic zone for a while now, because as, as some people may be aware, a lot of the river names in that East European region, uh, just north of Ossetia, are derivatives from the uh, word for water in Ossetian. For example, the river Don in Russia, right? So that actually comes from an Ossetian word. But this word Don, um, historically, it comes from a form like Danu. And Danu is not attested in most Aaronic languages. It is attested in Sanskrit with the meaning, I think, like dewdrop or something, and also in Avestan. But uh, most other Aaronic languages don't have that word, or at least don't have that word as the general word for water. So this creates a lot of differences from other Aaronic languages. And also in terms of structure, ascetic, it's difficult to say if it's an innovator in this regard or, a, or being archaic. But for instance, most Aaronic languages have prepositions. Ascetic actually prefers much more postpositions, which aligns it with its neighboring languages like Turkic languages and Nakh, Dagestani languages and, uh, and Georgian and so on. But Aaronic languages typically have prepositions, or in the case of Pashto, circumpositions, which sit on both sides. Wow, yeah. incredible. So yeah, very much influenced by its surrounding linguistic context, even at the level of grammar, let alone all these you know, changes to vocabularies over time. Let's talk briefly about the state of the language today. Two questions come immediately to mind. How unified is Ossetian? Are there dialects to this language? Is there sort of variation within what you might call the umbrella term of Ossetian? And how would you write this language? How would you write it down? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Ossetian, if you look at any handbook or um, or grammars of the language, it's typically said that it, it fractures into two major dialect groups, a Western dialect called Zigoron and an Eastern dialect called Iron. However, there could be said to be more dialects of Ossetian, particularly in South Ossetia, which are often brought under the umbrella term of Iron, but oftentimes speakers use other terms like Kodairak and Chishainag uh, to refer to their specific dialects. Zigoron and Iron are differentiated on historical phonology, uh, aspects of grammar, such as how certain verb conjugations work. On the other hand, the differences with uh, Southern Ossetian varieties is in phonology. There's less grammatical differences between Northern Iron and Southern varieties, such as Kodairag and Chishainag. However, Southern dialects have undergone a little more contact with Georgian simply because of geography, particularly prior to the breakdown of the Soviet Union, because after that, South Ossetia and Georgia stopped having much contact. So South Ossetians today don't speak Georgian much, but in the past there had been contact. And, and you see this even in terms of Georgian loanwords, which often come in more in South. There are Georgian loanwords even in Dugoron and Northern Iron, but a few which only occur in Southern Ossetian dialects that don't occur in Northern Ossetian dialects. 
So that's the dialect situation. One example I can give you is that the word for to go is soen in North Ossetian. So it's pronounced so, soen. Un is the infinitive ending, and then so is the verb stem. In Tugoron, it's pronounced ton with a t. In Chisainag, which is one of the South Ossetian dialects, it's pronounced tawan with a slightly different vowel. Uh becomes a in South Ossetian dialects. And in Kodairag, which is the main dialect of the Tchinval area, which is the capital of South Ossetia, they say shawan with a she. Fantastic. So there's great variety even within Ossetian. Yes. Um, so to discuss how the language is written. So historically, this is a very interesting question because historically we have evidence, actually no texts survive, but very few fragmentary records of words and phrases survive of Alanic from the medieval period. And over there, we see that Ossetian was written in the kingdom of Alania or old Ossetian, if you want to call it so, before the Mongol conquest of the 1200s in the Greek alphabet. And uh, because Ossetians were Christianized by the Byzantines, and then they took literacy from the Byzantines. And at that time, although we don't have many texts, because most of it was probably destroyed, there is good evidence because the orthography and whatever little text survives is so consistent that we can say that they had a proper literary tradition, even though much of it does not survive. Although I will say that in 1992, one Danish Byzantinist uh, her name is Engbea, working on Byzantine archives in St. Petersburg, actually discovered little phrases called the Alanic marginal notes, which uh, did survive in an otherwise Greek manuscript. So what I'm trying to say is that in the historical period, it was written in the Greek alphabet. But after the Mongol and Timurite conquests uh, and the fall of Alania, it ceased to be written at all until the modern times when that region came under Russian control. Now, in Russian control during the Soviet period, Ossetian was given a Roman writing system and a Latin alphabet was advised to, to write Ossetian. And then uh, in South Ossetia, the Georgian script was also used for some time. But then after the, the Roman script went out, the official orthography for Ossetian has been the Cyrillic alphabet. It's mostly similar to the Russian alphabet, although a few letters are pronounced a little differently, but those also depend on the Ossetian dialect. And one thing you can recognize is that Ossetian is the only language written in the Cyrillic script that uses the character ash, which is the, the ligature of joint A and E that you also find in Danish and Old English. So Ossetian uses that letter. So if you find Cyrillic letters with the AE ligature, then you can be certain that it's Ossetian you're looking at. Ossetian, as you've mentioned, finds itself primarily within the borders of modern-day Russia and also within the borders of modern-day Georgia, the country of Georgia, although those borders are very much disputed. Can you find speakers of this language elsewhere? Is there a diaspora of Ossetian speakers? Ossetian is spoken in the North Caucasus, as I mentioned, in addition, after the Russian conquest of the Caucasus, some Ossetians, I should say mostly among the Muslim section of Ossetians, migrated to the Ottoman Empire, what is to become Turkey. So there are Ossetian speakers currently in Turkey. There are three Ossetian villages in Turkey, Karabachar, Bayarla, and uh, Poyrazla. Poyrazla is Digoron, the other two are Iran villages. And then you can also find uh, from these villages people who've moved to other parts of Turkey, particularly the big cities 
for example, in Istanbul and in Ankara. Istanbul is where I've personally met Ossetian speakers. And uh, in addition, more recent diaspora populations have come up in all over the West. So there are Ossetians in the United States and Canada and Germany and, and other countries of the West. Well, I think I can speak for all the listeners that we can now consider ourselves pretty thoroughly educated in the world of the Ossetian language. So thank you very much. Now, I actually want to turn away from this language and turn the spotlight onto yourself. What's your relationship with Ossetian? Among all the languages which I know you study or have an interest in, why has this language captured your heart in a special way? So tell us about how you came to know Ossetian. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of a long-winded story, sort of, how I got interested in Ossetian. So I was uh, born and raised, spent most of my life in eastern India. I'm a native speaker of Bengali, which is an eastern Indo-Aryan language. And growing up, I had a lot of exposure to mostly other Indo-Aryan languages, for example, of course, Hindi and um, Kashmiri, Oriya, Marwari, Punjabi, and so on. And within those languages, you can easily tell that they're obviously related, like they're not mutually intelligible for the most part, but they have common vocabulary and common grammatical patterns that any native speaker will recognize that they're all related. When I was in college, I wasn't studying linguistics in college. I was a statistics major at that time, but I got interested in linguistics right then. And I remember learning about Indo-European languages and was really surprised, first of all, that you know the languages I was so familiar with are related to these languages far away in Europe. But at the same time, while among Indo-European languages, you can obviously see the relation with, say, something like if I want to compare Bengali with English or with French or something, it takes a lot more work. It's not immediately obvious that they are related languages. Linguists can, of course, prove it, but it is much more difficult work. And I wanted to see what's an intermediate between obviously related languages like Hindi and Kashmiri and very distantly related languages like English or Spanish. And the middle ground, of course, would have been Aaronic languages, which are sort of closely related to Indo-Aryan languages, but still distinct enough that the relationship is not completely obvious. And that's how at the end of high school or beginning of college or so, I started to learn a little bit of Persian. But unfortunately, I could never set my mind to Persian. And I'm sort of ashamed to say that the amount of Persian I knew then is the same amount of Persian I know now several years later. But at the same time, while studying Iranian languages, and I, I sort of studied a few, tried to study at least a few others, for example, Kurdish, I got to know of this language in the Caucasus that's, that was, first of all, stroke my fantasy because it's supposedly descended from the language of the Scythians and Sarmatians of antiquity, but also that it's, it's in the Caucasus, which I heard by then was very linguistically diverse and speaking languages which are mostly not Indo-European languages like, you know, Chechen and Georgian. And so this wanted me to explore this particular language, uh, Ossetian, this one outlier Iranic language spoken in the Caucasus. But unfortunately, I didn't know how to. And um, whatever I could search for the language were either very technical academic articles on specific aspects of syntax or something, uh, or all the pedagogical materials were in Russian. And at that time, I knew no Russian. 
So I decided to get in contact with native speakers who could hopefully give me a taste of their language, if not be able to teach me. Uh, so I was on a language exchange website at that time, and I had done language exchange for a couple other languages at that time, like German. But it was also very hard to find speakers of Ossetian because, you know, speakers of Ossetian wouldn't typically advertise that they are. They would usually write their, their in for language exchange with Russian with, uh, for whatever they want to learn. So what I did was, thankfully, this particular language exchange website provided the location of people. Like it would, it would say, you know, this particular person who wants to do language exchange between, say, Russian and German, they would speak Russian and they, they're expecting a German speaker to speak to them or something. They're situated in Moscow or they're situated in uh, Yakutsk or some other city, right? So I tried to look specifically for people who were situated in one of the Ossetian cities, like Vladikovkaz or Geslan. And most of the people I contacted, unfortunately, as it always happens with these online forums, that sometimes you don't get replies, sometimes you get replies, but people say that there are you know, various reasons, like either that they cannot speak Ossetian, their, their only language is Russian and so on. Now, I should make it clear that oftentimes people say such things, not because they don't necessarily speak Ossetian, but maybe because Russian is the dominant language, people have this sort of belief that, you know, Ossetian is, is a language that they would only use, say, with speaking to their grandparents or something. So even though technically they are native speakers, they would not often recognize themselves as one because they would think that their language is not good enough. It, it's not just specific to Ossetian. It's something that happens in minority languages everywhere in the world, right? People often say, oh, my, my language is not as good as my grandparents is and so on. So in any case, I was struggling to find people. But thankfully, there was this one girl, Marjagante Tamara, who's like a really good friend right now, who was excited about teaching her language to me. So she told me that uh, at that time, she was when I contacted her, she was doing it was an exchange student in Germany. And then she said, Yeah, so I'll return home to Ossetia in like a couple weeks, and then we can begin our lessons. And so that's how my journey in Ossetia began learning from native speakers. And then slowly, as I started to explore the language a little bit, I also began looking at academic articles on the language and uh, some translations from Russian into Ossetian. And that's how I started studying Ossetian. It sounds like a true romance between you and this language. It sounds like it was meant to be, you know, very often in linguistics, we have very personal reasons for why we want to study a particular language. You were looking for that middle ground between very distantly related and very immediately related. And, and then here you are learning from a native speaker. I think this is fantastic. What a great education to have. So far, you've demonstrated the breadth of knowledge that you have about this language and your wonderful personal story about how you and this language, Ossetian, found each other. What then is something that you really love about this language? What is a particular feature of Ossetian that you just think, ah, oh, this is cool? So tell us, what do you love within this language that you love? So I would say something that I really like about the Ossetian language is perhaps something historical. So you know how the currently presumed predecessors of the Ossetians, like the Steparonic tribes, they had names recorded in Greek with this particular 
suffix t, right? Like this, like the sarmatai or the masagetai with the t. Now, this t in modern Ossetian is the plural suffix. So, for example, if you have a word like chazar, which means house, you would, its plural will be chazarta. Okay, so t. Now, coming from old Indo-European languages yourself, you would obviously recognize that this is not a Indo-European way of forming plurals. In particular, Indo-European languages, or at least the canonical conservative Indo-European languages like Latin or Sanskrit, do not really have a plural morpheme as such. Number, as in like plural or dual, is uh, synchronized with case marking. So you have an instrumental plural suffix, but you don't have a plural suffix and an instrumental suffix separately. On the other mm. hand, the Ossetian case system is different in that, in the sense that it's more like uh, Uralic languages or more like Turkic languages where you have a separate plural suffix and a case suffix differently. And this plural suffix is t, which is the same as the suffix you find in the medieval Steparonic tribal names such as Sauromatai and um, Masagetai. Now, what's interesting is that this particular suffix is not, of course, unique to Ossetian. It, it was grammaticalized also in Sogdian and Yagnobi. So they too have a plural marker in T. And the origin of this particular suffix, you can find in other Indo-Iranic languages as well. For example, in Sanskrit, in traditional Sanskrit panini and grammar, it's called the tal suffix, and it's, it usually forms abstract nouns. For example, rju in Sanskrit is straight, so rjuta would be, you know, straightness, right? Or guru is heavy, and then guruta is like the state of being heavy or heaviness. In some cases, these uh, abstract nouns were lexicalized. For example, kavi is a poet or a seer, and then you would think that kavita would mean, you know, the state of being a poet or poetness, but it was lexicalized as poem, right? So kavita in Sanskrit means a poem. And in other cases, we see that this particular suffix getting sort of collective connotation. So jana is a word for person, and then janata is people as a collective together. It's grammatically a singular noun, singular feminine noun, but it has collective semantics. So like people as a collective or grama is a village and then gramata is a collection of villages or collection of settlements. So this collective meaning was likely reinterpreted as a plural marker in the ancestors of Ossetic and Sogdian. And that's how they ended up with this as a productive plural suffix. Now, what's interesting is that the tribal names Sauromate and Masagete are sort of the names as such are not continued into modern ascetic, but modern ascetic, modern ascetian people actually form their own tribal names in much the same way. So you have ascetian last names today, like Soriti or uh, Marjagante or Abaita or Zavoita, right? So it's the same pattern of using the t plural suffix to make family names or tribal names today and among Ossetians, although typically you would see Ossetian names Russianized. So instead of like Merzaganta, people would usually see, see uh, Merzaganova or Merzaganov and so on. But in Ossetian, they would still use the same tribal name formation that we see in, in the records of antiquity, which is something I find really interesting. That's cool. I'm just processing this. So we've got an ending 
that we see in all the cousin languages of Ossetian. We see it starts off as creating abstract nouns. You add it to form the abstract noun for something. Then it moves on to a collective meaning, like a collection of individuals. And then in Ossetian, it's become a plural marker. That's cool. Okay, now as the third question, this is your chance to tell the people listening, what is something that you want them to know about Ossetian? What's the point that you want to leave fresh as they go out into the world now knowing about this wonderful language? Okay, so once again, there's so many things I want to tell people about Ossetian, but if I had to choose one thing for people to remember... I would mention not something about the language per se, but about Ossetian and by extension, North Caucasian literary culture. So as I mentioned before, Ossetian, at least since the fall of Alania in the Middle Ages, was not really a written language and neither was most of its neighbors. So like there is not an extensive written record of Circassian or Abkhaz or Chechen or any of these languages. The only exception, of course, is Georgian, because Georgian is a language of major literary culture, has been for, for a very long time. However, they did have a very strong oral tradition. And some of the foundations for that oral tradition goes back to you know pre-Islamic, pre-Christian, if you would use that word, pagan traditions of a couple thousand years ago. And this manifests in a collection and in a corpus of diverse and loosely connected stories, folk tales, called the Nart Sagas. Now, the Nart Sagas are not specifically Ossetian. They're shared among the neighbors of Ossetian as well. So the Circassians and the Abkhazians and the Karachai Balkars, who are a Turkic people in that region, the Chechens and English, and of course, the northern Georgians and Swans also have versions of the Nart Sagas themselves. And so it's more of a collective North Caucasian heritage than specifically Ossetian. Uh, and different parts of it are attributed to, you know, some to Ossetian, some to Circassian, and so on. Now, uh, the Nart Sagas are very interesting because they have these amazing short little stories revolving around the same character, this group of people called the Narts, who form three different families, the Borata, the Alagat, and the Akshartakata. And um, so once again, you see that the suffix forming, you know, family names. What's interesting is that their comparative mythologists have often attributed some parts of Greek and uh, Greek mythology to the Nart Sagas. So as we know, the Greeks were very active. The ancient Greeks were very active in the Caucasus region. And several Greek myths, for example, Jason and the Argonauts talk about going to the Caucasus, right? Uh, so Colchis was... Eastern, what, what is today Eastern Georgia, so the area of Mangrelians and Lazas, who were cousins of the Georgians. And various stories in the Nart sagas, for example, the story of Prometheus uh, stealing fire, right, for which he was punished, has, uh, so that's, that same story pops up in the, in the Nart sagas as well. I don't think the Nart sagas has uh, that part where, you know, a, a vulture eats the innards and so on. But it does have this, at least the Circassian Nart sagas have this particular story where a character called Nasran is bound to the mountains and then he suffers in the cold. So lots of interesting connections there for, for a comparative mythologist, which I'm not, but, but it's really interesting. The Nart sagas are, are interesting to read if you like that, that sort of stuff. And what's more 
important is that you can actually read it without learning any of the any of the Caucasian languages. So when I started learning Ossetian, and one of the things my um, my friend Tamara would do is she would make me read the Nart sagas in Ossetian. So that's how I read the Nart sagas, uh, the Ossetian version. But the both the Ossetian version and the Circassian and Abkhaz versions have been translated into English and, of course, into Russian. And as far as I know, the Chechen and the Karachai versions are not yet translated, but at least the Ossetian and the Circassian versions are for anyone who wishes to you know, partake in this amazing cultural treasure that's in the Caucasus. That is fascinating. I'm just sat here listening to you, and it's like via the Ossetian language, we're getting a window into such an incredible pre-historical world, a world that we don't have access to via written sources, but we can still learn so much about and we can assume to have existed all these contacts between people and contacts between their languages and their legends too. Fascinating. Uh, this has been great. I think it's so nice to end on this great positive note and the invitation to people to go out and immerse themselves in a Ossetian uh, as you have. So wonderful. Great point to end on. Well, I think the only matter that is still outstanding is for me to say thank you very much and to ask where can people find you? If people have questions about Ossetian, where can they get in touch? Yeah, so the only social media I use, and I, unfortunately I use it a lot, <laughs> I spend a lot of time on it, is uh, Twitter. So people can definitely find me on Twitter. Other than that, I do have recently a Blue Sky account as well, although I haven't been using it all that much. So, so those, are the, those are the two places where if you have any, anything to ask about Ossetian or uh, neighboring languages you can get in touch. Highly, highly recommended from me to enjoy your linguistic output just as much as I have. I mean, I learn something from you every day on Twitter. So thank you. you have, I really do. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you for having me. For this episode's final fun fact, I'd like to share something surprising about another language of the Caucasus previously mentioned, Georgian. A tendency noted across many languages, especially European ones, is that words for mother include the nasal consonant m, as in French mère, Greek mitera, or Hebrew ima. You might think, therefore, that the Georgian parental terms mama and deda respectively mean mother and father. But no. Mama means father in Georgian, and deda means mother. That's it for another episode of A Language I Love Is. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave a review and recommend the podcast to anyone you know with a linguistic inclination. It's sincerely appreciated and helps A Language I Love Is to grow. Till the next time then, bye-bye.